morning. Thank you for the good morning. Thanks for the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning. This morning, my boys were playing with their little sponge swords running around the house. And of course, my wife was beginning her prayer time early, praying that they wouldn't hurt each other or get upset before church. And I said to one of my boys, hey, you get to use your sword this morning and I get to use a sword too. He said, huh? He said, I get to use the sword of the Lord and you use your little sponge sword and we'll both have a great time. So here we go. I believe in the prayers of the people, the work of the spirit and the power of the word. Amen. Amen. This last week, I was driving through Cole's parking lot. Um, some of you probably stop at Cole's. I prefer to drive through the parking lot. <laughs> oh, it's great. I love to see my wife go in and come out as I sit there on the bench with all the other guys or whatever. But here I was driving through the parking lot. And as you know, there are a bunch of uh, little ponds or drainage you know, things or whatever they are out in front. And there's a bunch of Canadian geese that sometimes call that place their home. As a result, these geese frequent the parking lot, and it just so happened that there was one mother goose with her little goslings trailing behind her. And so I was coming through with my car, and being the respectable driver that I am, I decided to honk my horn and try to, you know, encourage them to scoot out of the way so that I could pass through. And as I did, I thought I was being polite, but this mother goose just turns around, and she's like... Like, what? You know, I'm just trying to help you out here. I don't want to run over one of your little, you know, goslings or whatever. Get out of the way. Come on. I'm bigger. Please move. Boy, she was not getting the message. Let me tell you. She was standing there. She's like, and I'm thinking, come on, lady. Here I am, right? I mean, good grief. I'm sitting in a however many thousand pound Ford Taurus, and I know it's not exactly an H1 Hummer, but I think I can handle Mother Goose, right? Like, if you don't move out of the way, it's going to go poorly for you, and it probably won't be noticed by me. Move out of the way, please, you know? And sure, sure enough, there she is, you know, flapping her wings. And I thought, boy, this silly little lady. I mean, good grief. Here she is doing everything she can to scare me away, and she's willing to put her life on the line, all because she's got these little goslings trailing along behind her. And then when I began to think about it, I realized, well, you know what? Even though she may be a bit stupid, um, she's still a good mom. I mean, she loves her children. She's willing to sacrifice her life, and she's doing everything she can to make sure they get across the road, even if it means, you know, flapping her wings at the big, scary black monster. And that was an interesting experience for me. Now, if you want to flip it on the other side, I can tell you a story about when I went to Uganda. And what happened was, is we were going through the bush and we were in a nice big, uh, was it, it was a Range Rover? No, Land Rover. Range Rover, not Land Rover. Ran, Land Rover. And we're, you know, tromping through. We've got four-wheel drive. It's kind of a road but kind of not and we go around this big corner and there's a great big tree and all of a sudden on the other side of the tree there's a full-grown African elephant a female guarding her little baby troop 
And let me tell you, the stories were reversed at that point. I was not like, here we are, let's go elephant. I was more like, reverse, <laughs> you know. Here we go, because the elephant rears up and, you know, flaps her ears and looks at us and paws the ground. And I'm like, ah, you have the right of way. Go ahead, ma'am, you know, feel free. Pass. Carry your babies across the road. I submit you are bigger and stronger than I. No question about it. Now, why in the world do I begin with those two stories? Well, it's like this. You know, when you talk about God, it's a little bit strange if I were to call him a mother hen. You would say to me, what? You know, mother hens are typically thought of as, you know, a bit intrusive and overbearing and controlling and yap, yap, yap and chatty, chatty, chat. And it's not a very flattering image. But as you work through the Psalms, you'll actually see this image used of God quite frequently. When the psalmist says that we can run to him and we can hide underneath the shadow of his wings, it's playing upon the image of a mother hen. Who in that arid desert climate, what would happen is when the prairie fires would rage and go sweeping across the plain, all the little chicks run to their mom, she covers them up with their wings, and then she gets burnt, she dies, and they come crawling out, and they're safe. And this is the image over and over again that the psalmist uh, appeals to when he says, of God, I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings. So today, uh, we're going to look at a psalm that only in part uh, uses that image, but really even more so uses that theme. It shows God as the great protector, the great provider, who is making sure to get his people across the road, to carry them along on their journey and protect them and make sure to get them where they need to go. And that's why I use the mother hen and the elephant, because I want you to combine the ideas of both. The protectiveness of the mother hen, who's watching her little goslings all along the way, going, go this way, go this way, watch out, don't go here, move along, move along, come on. And yet the power and strength of the African elephant. So that when one's tremendous opposition rises up against you and you're afraid and you run to those wings, all of a sudden the elephant comes around the corner and is like, Bruh! And the other person's like, whoa, I submit, I back up. So today we're going to look at that in Psalm chapter 121. And basically we're going to say this, is that God will get you to your journey's end. That God, the protective hen or the mother elephant or whatever you want to call him, whatever image you'd like to assign, he will get you to your journey's end. Psalm 121, God will get you. To your journey's end. Let's go ahead and read it together. You'll see it up on the screen. You can also find it in the Blue Study Bible or Blue Bible on page 656. It's the 121st chapter or psalm. This is a psalm of ascent. It says this I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Who made heaven and earth? He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, 
nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now here's the journey image in verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God gets us to our journey's end. When we were having our first child, I remember being in the hospital room at night. And uh, one of the interesting things about it at this time, I don't know how it is now, but basically the hospital is an open door sort of thing. You know, you come in the front door and the doors just go and they open up and then you get on the elevator and you go up to the maternity wing. And sure enough, they make you wear bracelets and the child wear a bracelet and all that. But in the end, there's no locked doors and people can just walk in. And this was a bit of a different experience for me who is used to living in different places where you want to lock your doors and thinking, wow, I'm asleep in the middle of the night. I've got my completely sort of incapacitated wife over here on the bed. I've got a little baby over here underneath the lights. And here I am half awake and I'm trying to sleep and I'm thinking, man, anybody could walk in that door. And it was an interesting experience because I had lived in the land of uh, just, you know, single male and then married male. And basically my emotional bandwidth was about this far, you know. And then I had a child and my emotional bandwidth went from like this to like way out here. And I'm struggling with all these new emotions of protectiveness and paternal instinct and all these things that I'm feeling going on inside my heart that I didn't even know existed before. And I'm going through all these feelings. I'm like, what is going on in here? You know, whoa, this is crazy. And I just, I remember this distinct thought, boy, if, if a bear walked in that door, I mean, if a ginormous bear was like, you know, a huge grizzly bear, and he was literally just going to tear me apart, rip me limb from limb, at that point, it did not matter. I would have protected my son. And now I'm kind of like, no, (laughs) just kidding. I would still do that. (laughs) But life is life, right? (laughs) But here I was just feeling those intense. I would protect everyone. Don't worry. I love you, Ezra. I love you. That was a joke. Okay, that was a joke. All right. So I would do that, you know, and really a parent who feels that bond would as well. Now, I know it's not a perfect analogy because there are broken relationships as well. But for those that are in effect and healthy and and restored, what happens is this is as a result. Here here is a slide that will kind of show you what I'm talking about, because I want you to hook on to this phrase because it sounds a little bit heady, but it's also a little bit hearty, too. And I think you I think you'll know what I'm saying. Um, as a re- the maternal instinct or the paternal instinct, whatever you want to call it, it works like this. is Because of the generative nature of the relationship, there's a built-in biological bond. In other words, because that baby comes from that mommy's tummy or because that baby's a part of you, man, you latch on to it. You just hold on to that thing. You're like, boy, we went through so much. The same could be true of an adoption process as well. You know, you fill out all the paperwork, you wait and wait and wait, you go through the background checks, you get approved, you go overseas, you spend the money, you bring them back, and finally you're like, yes, we have our child. And then there's a huge process after that. But here we are, and what I'm trying to show is that this process, this generative nature or adoptive nature or whatever you want to call it, creates this sort of intrinsic bond. The parent 
and the child. And what we see, I think, in the Old Testament is the way God describes his relationship is with us or with his covenant people is very similar. The, the maternal instinct is a lot like the divine instinct as well. And so I think you can fairly say that the divine instinct, here's another slide, because of the generative nature of this relationship of God and his creation, there is a built-in bond or a covenant. Now, there's, of course, the working out theologically of the elect and all that other stuff, but I'm just saying in general, God's view of his creation is one of affection, one of love, and one of ownership. That he has an intrinsic built-in bond because he made it. It's his. It's his. Now, as we look at Psalm 121, I think that will play itself out, and you will see this theology at work. Why is theology important? Well, the way we think of God determines how we live our lives. It determines how we relate to Him, and therefore how we relate to others as well. And so in this psalm, what the psalmist is going to do is he's going to say, here are two fundamental aspects of God's nature, of His character, of who He is as a person. And as a result of that, this is how it will impact your daily life. This is who God is, and this is why it matters to you. That is the work of theology, or the study of God. This is who he is, this is why it matters. So Psalm 121 is going to stress these two fundamental aspects of God. Number one, that he is creator. There's a generative relationship. There's a, there's a slide here of this as well. The, he is the creator, there's a generative relationship, and that he has an intrinsic bond or a covenant with his creation. He is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his agreements. That is the nature of who he is. And he is also the one who made this thing and set the wheels in motion. So God is the creator. God is the covenant keeper. Now, all this plays in to the divine instinct, which basically says this, is that because of the generative nature of the relationship, creation, there is a built-in bond, a covenant. So, in other words, what I'm saying is mother goose, mother hen, mother elephant, God himself, the one who generates this thing, takes ownership, has an affection and a built-in bond for it, and therefore he has committed within himself to get it to the end, to help it go the whole distance. So then, let's look at how that plays out and see if I'm just making this up or if this is biblical. Psalm chapter 121, verse 1, it says this, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Who is the Lord? He is the maker of heaven and earth. Now, having lived where we most recently lived, we were uh, in frequent viewing distance of the mountains. And even if you don't live within viewing distance of the mountains, you've either probably seen a picture or visited themselves. And no doubt, I imagine you remember your first experience with such a thing, whether it was going up on a gondola or skiing or just looking from a distance, whatever. When you come into the presence of this enormous, huge work of art, it is absolutely overwhelming. 
It is beautiful. It is breathtaking. It is awe-inspiring. It shows you how big God is and how small we are. And you look at this thing and you just go, wow, oh man, praise the Lord. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. That is what Jeremiah says in chapter 32 of God. He says, oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the maker, the heavens and earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. In other words, when you look at the fundamental creative nature of God, what you see is the elephant. You see this huge power right in front of you that cannot be contested. That it is indescribable, that it is huge, it is enormous, it is big. And you see it and you just go, wow, look at that. He is huge. Isaiah, another prophet, says, oh, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, you are God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth that you have made. Fundamental to who God is, is his creative prowess. And that's a big deal within... Within our society, within our time period, obviously there's, there's a lot of debate revolving along that issue. I'm not talking to you this morning about time periods or you know, dates or age or anything else, but I want to say this. It is extremely important that you believe that God created the heavens and earth. I think that, is a, 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 that would be an essential top-tier uh, orthodox required Christian belief, that God is creator. It is essential that you believe that he started this whole thing in motion. If he didn't, then we are just wasting our time. But if he did, then you are under his power. You are under his rule. You are accountable to him. He owns you because he made you. In other words, as the parent said to the child, look, I brought you into this world. I can take you out as well. You know? And that's what God is, too. He is the elephant that says, look, I am so big. I am so powerful. I began this thing. It is all under my control. It is mine. I made it. And therefore, none of it can argue with me. I'm the boss. I'm in control. And in that, we don't find slavery, but in fact, we find freedom. We find the ability to trust and rest in a sovereign, omnipotent, almighty creator God. But you take the creator part out and you lose all the other stuff too. There is no more sovereign. Because the world then would exist outside of him. Independent of him. And therefore no longer under his control. It's not accountable to him. It started at some point in time. He started another. And they're just kind of both out there. But since God was first, he is over it. He began it. He controls it. It submits to him. The whole creator thing is a big deal. And that's what you see going over and over again through these Psalms and through the prophets and through the Old Testament and through the law. And even Christ himself says, hey, don't you guys know in the beginning he made them male and female? Jesus himself appeals to original creative order in order to make his doctrines true. Creation is fundamental and essential and just a bottom line thing to who we are. And the psalmist then is going to appeal to that. He's going to say, based on who God is, based on his nature, 
you know that he will guide you through this journey because he's not some outside observer. Instead, he's the one who started it. He's the one who's in control of it. He's the one who knows where it's going, where it'll end, and how to get there in between. That's why it's a big deal. So listen. Listen to the verses then. Listen to how this works. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, now skipping forward, in the end... God can recreate the heavens and the earth. Since in the beginning he made them, he shows you that in the end he can do it again. And in the meantime, in between where we're at right now, he knows how to get us there from one point to the next. So because of in the beginning, we know therefore in the end, and we have hope in the middle. Amen? That's why it's a big deal. In other words, what I'm saying to you this morning is there is only one. There is only one creator. There is only one maker. There is only one sustainer. There is only one ruler of the entire universe. And that is God. Everyone and everything must then submit to him. Fundamental to what we believe. So God is able Point number one, I would say, is based on the Creator, we know that He is able. That He is able to get us to our journey's end. Now, it's an interesting thing here, what happens next in the text. Because we sit here and we look at God's power. We say, well, He's able, but will He? I mean, would He care? Does He want to? How is He involved? Why should He? You look at the next few verses in verses 3 through 7, and you read it. If you're not careful, this can lead to some pretty messed up theology. Here's where things get interesting. It says this. It says, He will not let your foot be moved. He will not slumber. He's your keeper. He's your shade. He will not let the sun strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He will keep you from all evil. Woohoo! No trouble in life whatsoever, right? Because I just read that in Psalm 121. This means I will never have a bad day. I just have to believe. And everything will go right. I'll have plenty of friends, plenty of money. I'll never get sick. Everything will go well for me. Everything my hand touches will turn to gold. Yahoo! No evil, right? Is that real? Well, then uh, what do we do with that? Did God fail? I had a parishioner in my last church, we'll call him John Smith, just to protect the, uh, his survivor's identity. And basically what happened to him, he's, he's a 45-year-old guy, he had a kid who just started his freshman year in college, had a, uh, a daughter who was in high school, you know, hadn't even graduated from high school. He got a brain tumor, rare brain tumor, I don't even remember what it's called. All of a sudden, you know, one day he he has headaches and then he's feeling dizzy and he complains. He goes into the doctor and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, stop. You're going to St. Louis right now. Leave wherever you're at and go. And all of a sudden everything was flipped upside down. And our church rallies around him. We, you know, call in the troops. We pray. We anoint him with oil. We bring in meals. We go to the hospital room. We sit through the surgeries. We comfort him through the treatments. We do everything we can. But in the end, he dies. So what then? 
Did God fail? What are we left with? What about the I will keep you from evil? Isn't that bad? Yes, sin and death, that's bad. Absolutely. What's happening here? This is where the idea of context is so extremely important to biblical interpretation. What happens here, and I'll show you how this plays into your lives as well, but let me show you how this works in the life of the psalmist. He is under what's called the Old Covenant. Uh, Your Bible is broken into two halves. One is the Old Testament or Old Covenant. The other is the New Testament or New Covenant. He is under this certain time period or epoch wherein God has made a specific agreement with this people group and he has said to them, based on the knowledge you have at this time, if you keep these rules, I will take care of you in life. Here is the agreement. You guys messed up, but even though you messed up, I'm going to provide a temporary covering for you so that as you go along your journey, when you continue to mess up, like I know you will, I will continue to forgive you because that's who I am. But it has to function within this agreement. And so the deal is, if you obey, I'm going to bless you. And if you disobey, I'm going to curse you. I will bless you for obedience and I will curse you for disobedience. It's pretty simple. And here's some of the things, how that plays out. There's the law. And that's all they had. And so they live under that and they have not received the fuller picture that we have, the progressive revelation, the prophets then, and then the fulfillment in Christ and the future promises as well. Instead, they're just living under this single um, Mosaic or Moses' law agreement. And basically, the psalmist is claiming that. He's saying, look, Lord, if I live according to your law, according to your covenant, I know how these things are supposed to go. And I'm doing this, and therefore I expect you to do this. Here's our agreement. It's fundamental to who you are, and I know that you are a covenant-keeping God. Therefore, you will. Notice then, as you look at it, you'll see in um, verse something that it says, He keeps his covenant with Israel. He keeps his covenant with Israel. Now that is specific. That is calling on the covenant relationship or the agreement. So too the name for God throughout this whole text is only one name and that is Yahweh. In other words, it's appealing to the covenant keeping God. So he, the psalmist is saying, Lord, this is how we relate and this is what I therefore expect. So how then does that relate to us? Have I just washed away this whole psalm and said that none of it applies to you and your life is going to be miserable? No, absolutely not. Because even though we're under a different covenant, we too have a covenant. And even though it's a different era, we still have a creator. And that creator still maintains a bond with us, his creation, which is intrinsic to him. And so the creator is still the same, even though the covenant is different, but the principle still applies. So do we have a creator? Yes. He is still all-powerful. He is still on the throne. He is still in control. Do we have a covenant? Yes. But that covenant is not based on the Old Testament Mosaic law. Instead, it is based on the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is this, Hebrews 9.15. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of what kind? A temporal? No an eternal inheritance. 
since death has occurred, that is Christ, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So in other words, as a result of Christ's perfect obedience, his sacrificial and atoning death, his burial and his resurrection, then the old covenant has graduated into the new covenant. It has been transcended, so to speak. And so it widens our horizons from the temporal things that we think of as blessings in this life and expands them to blessings in the next. We are no longer limited by the here and now, but we are looking at the perspective or the future of forever. So, then, here's how it works. In your life, what does the new covenant promise to you? What do you get as a result of the new covenant? If you're a member of this community, this new covenant ecclesia, this church, the called out ones, this is what you get. You get cleansing and renewal. You get forgiveness of sins and rebirth. You get the indwelling and sealing of the Holy Spirit. You receive an active, immutable, and ongoing relationship with God. You receive peace and confidence. You receive eternal life in this life. You have it now. And you receive it in the next. You receive the future promises of a new heaven and a new earth and the kingdom of Christ wherein you will never be disappointed again because perfect justice, righteousness, and harmony will rule forever in eternal bliss. You get the promise of a new body where you will no longer suffer the effects of sin and you will enjoy perfect, harmonious relationships with everyone around you for eternity from then on out. That's a good deal. That's a little bit better, I would say, than your corn coming up at the end of the day. You get absolute perfection forever and ever based on this relationship. And what applies to the psalmist then applies to us, is that God will get us to that end. We can rely on him as the mother hen or the mother elephant or whatever to scurry us along the road and get us to where we need to go. So that when some great big attacker driving a Ford Taurus comes around the corner and is like, rah, then all of a sudden the elephant comes out and says, hey, back off. And we can appeal to that and we can apply to that. And this is how my friend John Smith did it. When he was going through this brain tumor and this process, he would say to his young daughter who needs her daddy and loves her dad, he would say to her, hey, Everything is going to be okay. Everything's okay. And you look at that and you say, what? What do you mean everything's okay? Dad, you're dying. You're sitting in a chair. Your head is huge. You're going away. What do you mean? I want you there at my graduation. I want you there for my wedding. What do you mean everything's going to be okay? And for us, if we were listening to that old covenant and we are limited by that temporal view and we thought that everything had to be fixed in this life, we would say that's simply not true. But for those who are under the new covenant, who look forward to the future and trust in the creator who made it once and can make it again, who has promised to get us to that end, then they can say, yeah, it will be okay. No matter what we know, it'll be okay. We do. Whether through the flames God delivers us from them 
whether he delivers us if we have to walk through them or he delivers us by them and they are the end. We still know that everything will be okay because he did it once in the beginning and he can do it again. He is the creator. He is the ruler. He is the restorer. He is the maker of the universe. And we appeal to, just like the psalmist did, that covenant. Say, Lord, you've promised me forgiveness of sins. You've promised me an eternal relationship with you. You've promised your spirit to indwell me. And you've promised me a future in heaven forever. Lord, I claim that. And I expect that. And I need that. And I need you to reassure me of that and be with me as I walk through this because I don't know how it's going to go. You can get me to the other side of the road. But I can't. I don't know where we're going. Help. And then what's so cool about that is God doesn't leave us just right there, but instead the promises that he said to Abraham, he actually says, says to us as well. When God calls Abraham, he says what? I will be with you. Go to a land that you've never known, and I will show you what that is. And when you get there, I'll tell you. So Abraham was going on faith, just like us. And guess what he says to us? Jesus comes, he dies on the cross, He says, hey, they hated me. They're going to hate you. I suffered. You're going to suffer. But guess what? I am going to take you to a land that you don't know, an eternal kingdom, and I will show you the way. And lo, I am with you, even into the end of the world. I will be with you. And so we, in the keeping with the old covenant, follow along in faith. And we trust that the sovereign creator and ruler and sustainer and maker of the whole universe will guide us along the way. That he is as caring as a mother hen and as powerful as a giant elephant. That he knows where we're going and he knows how to get us there. And what that does for us now is it gives us peace. Even in this life, even when we don't know what's going to happen or how we're going to pay for it or if we're going to get through of it or whatever, we know that God will get us to the end. And we can claim that. As a result, we can sit back in those tough times and we can just be like, whew, here come the fears, here come the emotions, here comes the rational and the irrational. It's all flooding in. And God, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to claim your promises. Because you know how to get me there from beginning to end. In the beginning, you made the heavens and the earth. And in the end, you're going to remake it. And in the middle, I don't know what's happening, but I trust you in between. Lord, help. I appeal to your covenant, to the new covenant. And you are still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I know that you are the creator and the covenant-keeping God. And so like the psalmist, I will ask the same question. In my circumstance, when things begin to flood and overwhelm me, I will look to the hills and say, Oh, God, where does my help come from? Where are you? Is it the mountains? No. My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He is my keeper. He is my watchman. He is my guardian. He is my shepherd. He is the one guiding and protecting me the whole way through. So whether it is deliverance from the thing or endurance of it, I know whether deliverance or endurance that God will get me to my destination's end. 
This is what I want for you, church, and this is what I want for me, too. As we come into hard times and we face these things and we don't know what to do, and the flood of emotions and thoughts and nighttime spirals on our pillows come in, we locate our confidence in God. And we say, I know who you are. You are creator. You are covenant keeper. Now, I don't know how to get to the end, but I know you do. So I am trusting you to get me through. As a result, Philippians 4, 7 tells us, if, the, if you do that, here's the promise. Here's what will happen. The keeper, the watchman, the covenant keeper, the mother hen, the elephant, this is what he will do. The peace of God, you will receive that. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard or keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is your heart and your mind. It's not the physical This is spiritual, eternal, and intangible. Therefore, Peter tells us in chapter 4, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful what? Creator, while doing good. He's still the Creator. He's still good. And Timothy then assures you, Look, if you're wondering how it's going to end, this is how it'll go. The Lord will rescue you. Maybe not in this life. Maybe in the next. But He will rescue you from every evil deed and bring you safely to your journey's end. His heavenly kingdom. God will get you to your journey's end. I don't know how. I don't know what that means for you. But I know you can trust Him. He is the Creator He is the covenant-keeping God. To Him alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank You that we can run 